Chapter Two, Part Two of Rainy Week by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Lee. Not exactly a whole wreck it had proved to be. Not shattered spars and masts and crumpled cabins with plush cushions floating messily about, but at least it was a real trunk from a real wreck. Mrs. Brunswick had spied it first. Just back of a long, brown, untidy line of flotsam and jetsam, the seaweeds, the dead fish, the old bales and boxes that every storm brings to the beach, Mrs. Brunswick had spied the trunk lurching up half-embedded in the sand. It must have come in on the biggest wave of all some time during the night. It was awfully wet, and yet not so awfully wet. Everybody agreed, that is, that it wasn't waterlogged, that it hadn't, in short, been rolling around in the sea for weeks or months, but bespoke a disaster as poignantly recent as last night, on the edge of this very storm indeed that they themselves were now frivoling in. For fully half an hour, it appeared, before even so much as touching the trunk, they had raced up and down the beach, hunting half hopefully, half fearfully, for some added trace of wreckage, the hunched body even, of a survivor. But even with this shuddering apprehension once allayed, the original discovery had not proved an altogether facile adventure. It had taken indeed at the last all their combined energies and ingenuities to open the trunk. The bride had broken two fingernails. George Keats had lost his temper. Paul Brunswick, in a final flare of desperation, had kicked in the whole end with an abandon that seemed to have been somewhat of an astonishment to everybody. Even from the first, young Kenilworth had contested that the thing smelt dead. But this unhappy odor had been proved very fortunately to be nothing more nor less than the rain-sloved coloring matter of the bride's pondlily hat. And here is what we found in the trunk, thrilled the bride, in the palm of her extended hand lay a garnet necklace, fifty stones perhaps, flushing crimson dark in a silver setting of such unique beauty and such unmistakable Florentine workmanship as stamped the whole trinket indisputably precious, if not the stones themselves. And there were women's dresses in it, explained Paul Brunswick, rather queer-looking dresses and, oh, it was the, the funniest trunk! cried the May girl. All! Her eyes were big with horror. Anybody could have Sherlocked at a glance, sniffed young Kenilworth, that it had been packed by a crazy person. No, I don't agree to that at all, protested the bride, whose own trunk-packing urgencies and emergencies were only too recent in her mind. Anybody's liable to pack a trunk like that when he's moving, the last trunk of all. Every leftover thing that you thought was already packed or that you had planned to tuck into your suitcase and found suddenly that you couldn't. Why, there was an old-fashioned copper chaving dish, sniffed young Kenilworth, and the top drawer of a sewing table fairly rattling with spools. And books, frowned George Keats, the weirdest little old edition of Pilgrim's Progress. And toys, quivered the May girl. A perfectly gorgeous brand-new box of Toy Village, as huge as—oh, it was awful! As huge as that, kicked young Kenilworth, rifily against the box at his feet. I wanted to bring the chafing dish, he scolded, but nothing would satisfy this young idiot here except that we lugged the Toy Village. 
one couldn't bring everything all at once deprecated the may girl perhaps tomorrow if it isn't too far and we ever could find dick again but why such haste about the toy village i questioned why not the dresses the hopelessly but with her eyes like blue skies her cheeks like apple blossoms the may girl tried to justify her mental processes probably i can't explain exactly she admitted but books and dishes and dresses being just things wouldn't mind being drowned but toys i think would be frightened with a frank expression of shock she stopped suddenly and stared all around her it doesn't quite make sense when you say it out loud does it she reflected but when you just feel it inside i brought the little pilgrim's progress back with me confessed george keats with the faintest possible smile not exactly perhaps because i thought it would be frightened but two nights shipwreck on a new england coast in this sort of weather didn't seem absolutely necessary and i brought the dinkiest little pearl-handled pistol brightened paul brunswick it's a peach tucked into the pocket of an old blue cape it was wonder i ever found it from a furious rummaging through her pockets the may girl suddenly withdrew her hand of course we'll have to watch the shipwreck news said the may girl or even advertise perhaps so maybe there won't be any real treasure trove after all but just to show that i thought of you mrs delville she dimpled here are four very damp spools of red sewing silk for your own work-table drawer maybe they came all the way from china and here's a i don't know what it is for alan john i think it's a whistle and here is a little not too soggy real morocco bound blank book for mr rollins when he comes downstairs again and and for mr delville i teased and for ann waltor with her hand slapped across her mouth in a gesture of childish dismay the may girl stared round at her companions oh dear oh dear oh dear she stammered none of us ever thought once of poor mr delville and miss waltor it's hot eatments and drinkments that you'd better be thinking of now i warned them all with real concern and blanket wrappers and downy quilts be off to your rooms and i'll send your lunches up after you and don't let one of you dare show his drenched face downstairs again until supper time then alan john and i resumed our reading aloud we read longfellow this time and a page or two of marcus aurelius and half a detective story and substituted orange juice very mercifully for what had grown to be a somewhat monotonous carousal in malted milk alan john seemed very much gratified with the little silver whistle from the shipwreck and showed quite plainly by various pursings of his strained lips that he was fairly yearning to blow it but either hadn't the breath or else wasn't sure that such a procedure would be considered polite really by six o'clock i had grown quite fond of alan john it was his haunted eyes i think and the lovely lean line of his cheek but whether he was animal vegetable mineral spiritual or intellectual i myself was not yet prepared to say the supper hour passed fortunately without fresh complications everybody came down everybody's eyes were like stars and everybody's complexion lashed into sheer gorgeousness by the morning's mad buffet of wind and wave best of all no one sneezed 
Our little bride was a dream again in a very straight, very severe grey velvet frock that sheathed her young suppleness like the suppleness of a younger crusader. Her regenerated beauty was an object lesson to all young husbands' pocketbooks for all time to come, that beauty, like love, is infinitely more susceptible to bad weather than is either homeliness or hate, and as such must be cherished by a man's brain as well as by his brawn. Paul Brenswick, goodness knows, would never need to choose his bride's clothes for her. But lusty young beauty lover that he was, by every right of clean heart and clean living, it was up to him to see that his beloved was never financially hampered in her own choosing. A non-extravagant bride, wrecked as his bride had been by the morning's tempest, might not so readily have recovered her magic. The May girl, as usual, was like a spray of orchard bloom in some white, frothy, midi-blouse sort of effect. With the May girl's peculiarly fragrant and insouciant type of youthfulness, one never noted somehow just what she wore, nor rated one day's mood of loveliness against another. The essential miracle, as of May time itself, lay merely in the fact that she was here. Everybody talked, of course, about the shipwreck. The bride did not wear her necklace. It was too ghostly, she felt. But she carried it in her hand and brooded over it with the tender, unshakable conviction that once, at least, it must have belonged to another bride. Rollins, I thought, was rather unduly enthusiastic about his share of the booty. Yet no one who knew Rollins could ever possibly have questioned the absolute sincerity of him. Notebooks, it appeared, were a special hobby of his, Morocco-bound notebooks particularly, and when it came to faintly soggy Morocco-bound notebooks, words were inadequate, it seemed, to express his appreciation. Nothing would do but the May girl must inscribe it for him. Aberner Rollins, she wrote very carefully in her round, childish hand, with a giggly flourish at the tail-tip of each word, for Abner Rollins from his friend May Davies. Awful shipwreck time, May 10th, 1919. Rollins used an inestimable number of notebooks, it appeared, in the collection of his statistics. The collection of statistics was the consuming passion of his life, he confided to everybody. The consuming passion, he reiterated emphatically. Already, he affirmed, he had revised and re-audited the whole fresh egg account of his own family for the last three generations. In a single slender tome, he bragged, he held listed the favorite flowers of all living novelists, both of America and England. Another tome bulged with the evidence that would-be suicides invariably waited for pleasant weather in which to accomplish their self-destruction. In regard to the little black Morocco volume he kindled ecstatically, he had already dedicated it to a very interesting new thought which had just occurred to him that evening, apropos of a little remark, a most significant little remark that had been dropped during the breakfast chat. If anyone was really interested, he suggested hopefully. Nobody was the slightest bit interested. Nobody paid the remotest attention to him. Everybody was still too much excited about the shipwreck and planning how best to salvage such loot as remained. 
and maybe by tomorrow there will be even more things washed up, sparkled the maid girl. A real India shawl, perhaps. A set of chessmen, carved from a whale's tooth. Only, of course, if it should rain as hard, she drooped as suddenly as she had sparkled. It can't, said young Kenilworth. Even with the fresh crash of wind and rain at the casement, he made the assertion arrogantly. It isn't in the mind of God, he said, to make two days as rainy as this one. The little black Pomeranian believed him anyway, and came sniffing out of the shadows to see if the arrogantly gesticulative young hand held also the gift of lump sugar as well as of prophecy. It was immediately after supper that the May girl decided to investigate the possibilities and probabilities of her toy village. Somewhat patronizingly at first, but with a surprisingly rapid kindling of enthusiasm, young Kenilworth conceded his assistance. The storm outside grew wilder and wilder. The scene inside grew snugger and snugger. The room was warm, the lamps well shaded, the tables piled with books, the chairs themselves deep as waves. Loaf and let loaf was the motto of the evening. By pulling the huge wolfskin rug away from the hearth, the May girl and young Kenilworth achieved for their village a plane of smoothness and light that gleamed as fair and sweet as a real village common at high noon. Curled up in a fluff of white, the May girl sat cross-legged in the middle of it, superintending operations through a maze of sunny hair, stretched out at full length on the floor beside her, looking for all the world like some beautiful exotic-faced little lad. Young Kenilworth lay on his elbows, adjusting, between incongruous puffs of cigarette smoke, the faintly shattered outline of a miniature church and spire, or soothing a blister of salt sea's tears from the paint-crackled visage of a tiny villa. Softly the firelight flickered and flamed across their absorbed young faces. Mysteriously, the wisps of cigarette smoke merged realities with unrealities. It was an entrancing picture, and one by one everybody in the room except Rollins and myself became drawn more or less into it. If you're going to do it at all, argued Paul Brunswick, you might as well do it right. When you start in to lay out a village, you know there are certain general scientific principles that must be observed. Now that list to the floor there. What about drainage? Can't you see that you've started the whole thing entirely wrong? But I wanted it to face toward the fire, drooped the May girl, like a village looking on the wonders of Vesuvius. Vesuvius nothing, insisted Paul Brunswick. It's got to have good drainage. Enchanted by his seriousness, the bride rushed off upstairs with her scissors to rip the foliage off her second-best hat to make a hedge for the churchyard. Even Alan John came sliding just a little bit out of his chair when he noted that there was a large, rather humpy papier-mâché mountain in the outfit that seemed likely to be discarded. I would like to have that mountain put there, he pointed, against that table shadow, and the mountain's name is Blue Blur. Oh, very well, acquiesced everybody. The mountain's name is Blue Blur. It was George Keats who suggested taking the little bronze psyche from the mantelpiece to make a monument for the public square. 
Of course there'll be some in your village, he deprecated, who'll object to its being a nude. But as a classic it... It's a bear, it's a bear, it's a bear, chanted Kenilworth in exultant falsetto. Speaking of classics... Hush, said George Keats. George Keats really wanted very much to play, I think, but he didn't know exactly how to, so he tried to talk highbrow instead. This village of yours, he frowned. I, I hope it's going to have good government. Well, it isn't, snapped young Kenilworth. It's going to be a terror, but at least it shall be pretty. Under young Kenilworth's crafty hand, the little village certainly had bloomed from a child's pretty toy into the very real beauty of an artist's ideal. The skill of laying out little streets one way instead of another, the decision to place the tiny red schoolhouse here instead of there, the choice of a linden rather than a pine tree to shade an infinitesimal green-thatched cottage, had all combined in some curious twinge of charm to make your senses yearn. Not that all that cunning perfection should swell suddenly to normal real estate dimensions, but that you, reduced by some lovely miracle to toy size, might slip across that toy-sized greensward into one of those toy-sized houses and live with toy-sized passions and toy-sized ambitions and toy-sized joys and toy-sized sorrows one single hour of a toy-sized life. Everybody, I guess, experienced the same strange little flutter. That house shall be mine, affirmed George Keats quite abruptly. That grey stone one with the big bay window and the pink rambler rose. The bay window room, I'm sure, would make me a fine study, and... From an excessively delicate readjustment of a loose shutter on a rambling brown bungalow, young Kenilworth looked up with a certain flicker of exasperation. Live anywhere you choose, he snapped. Miss Davies and I are going to live here. W what stammered the May girl. What? Here, grinned young Kenilworth. Oh, no, said the May girl. Without showing the slightest offence, she seemed suddenly to be quite positive about it. Oh, no! If I live anywhere, it's going to be in the grey stone house with Mr. Keats. It's so infinitely more convenient to the schools. To the what? chuckled Kenilworth. Before the very evident astonishment and discomfiture in George Keats's face, his own was convulsed with joy. To the schools, dimpled the May girl. You do me a, a very great honor, bowed George Keats. His face was scarlet. Thank you, said the May girl. In the second somewhat panicky pause that ensued, Rollins flopped forward with his notebook. Rollins evidently had been waiting a long and impatient time for such a pause. Now speaking of drinking to drown one's sorrows, beamed Rollins. But we weren't, observed George Keats coldly. But you were this morning, triumphed Rollins. From the flapping white pages of the little black notebook, he displayed with pride the entries that he had already made, a separate name heading each page, Mrs. Delville, Mr. Delville, Mr. Keats, Miss Davies, the list began. Now take the hypothesis, 
glowed Rollins, that everybody has got just two bottles stowed away for all time, the very last bottles, I mean, that he will ever own, rum, rye, benedictine, anything you choose, and eliminating the first bottle as the less significant of the two. What are you saving the last one for? demanded Rollins. From a furtive glance at Alan John's graying face and the May girl's somewhat startled stare, young Kenilworth looked up with a rather peculiarly glinting smile. Oh, that's easy, said he. I'm saving mine to break the head of some bally fool. And my last bottle, interposed George Keats quickly. My last bottle? In his fine ascetic face, the flush deepened suddenly again. But with the flush, the faintest possible little smile showed also at the lip line. Oh, I suppose if I'm really going to have a wedding, in that little grey toy house, it's up to me to save mine for a loving cup, claret, something very mild and rosy. Yes, mine shall be claret. With her pretty nose crinkled in what seemed like a particularly abstruse reflection, the May girl glanced up. Benedictine, she questioned. Is that the stuff that smells the way stars would taste if you ate them raw? I really can't say, mused Kenilworth. I don't think I ever ate a perfectly raw star. At the night lunch carts, I think they almost invariably fry them on both sides. Night lunch carts, scoffed Keats, with what seemed to me like rather unnecessary acerbity. No, somehow I don't seem to picture you in a night lunch cart when it comes time to share your last bottle of champagne with... with... Miss Dancy Prancy of the Sillies, wasn't it? My last bottle isn't champagne, flared young Kenilworth. It's scotch, and there'll be no Miss Anybody in it, thank you. His face was really angry, and one twitch of his foot had knocked half his village into chaos. Oh, all right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do with my last bottle. He frowned. The next to the last one, as you say, is none of your business. But the last one is going to my old man. I come from Kansas, he acknowledged a bit shamefacedly, from a shack no bigger than this room, and my old man lives there yet, and he's always been used to having a taste of something when he wanted it, and I guess he misses it some and he'll be eighty years old the 15th of next December. I'm going home for it. I haven't been home for seven years. But my old man is going to get his scotch. If they yank me off at every railroad station and shoot me at sunrise each new day, my old man is going to get his scotch. Bully for you, said George Keats. All the same, argued the May girl, I think Benedictine smells better. With a little gaspy breath, somebody discovered what had happened to the village. "'Who did that?' demanded Paul Brunswick. "'You did,' snapped young Kenilworth. "'I didn't either,' protested Brunswick. "'Why, of all cheeky things!' cried the bride. "'Now see here,' I admonished them. "'You're all very tired and very irritable, "'and I suggest that you all pack off to bed.' Helping the May girl up from her cramped position, George Keats bent low for a single exaggerated moment over her preferred hand. I certainly think you are making a mistake, Miss Davies, 
bantered young Kenilworth. For a long run, of course, Mr. Keats might be better, but for a short run I am almost sure that you would have been jollier in the brown bungalow with me. Time will tell, dimpled the May girl. Then I really may consider us formally engaged, smiled George Keats, still bending low over her hand. He was really rather amused, I think, and quite as much embarrassed as he was amused. No, not exactly formally, dimpled the May girl, but until breakfast time tomorrow morning. Until breakfast time tomorrow morning, hooted young Kenilworth. That's the deuce of a funny time limit to put on an engagement. It's like asking a person to go skating when there isn't any ice. Is it? puzzled the May girl. What the deuce do you expect Keats to get out of it? quizzed young Kenilworth. In an instant, the May girl was all smiles again. He'll get mentioned in my prayers, she said. Please bless Mr. Keats, my fiancé, till tomorrow morning. That's certainly something, conceded George Keats. It isn't enough, protested Kenilworth. The May girl stared round appealingly at her interlocutors. But the time is so awfully short, she said, and I did want to get engaged to as many boys as possible in the week I was here. What? What? I bubbled. Yes, for very special reasons, said the May girl. I would like to get engaged to as many... With a strut like the strut of a young band tam rooster, Rollins pushed his way suddenly into the limelight. If it will be the slightest accommodation to you, he affirmed, you may consider yourself engaged to me tomorrow. Disconcerted as she was, the May girl swallowed the bitter, unexpected dose with infinitely less grimace than one would have expected. She even smiled a little. Very well, Mr. Rollins, she said. I will be engaged to you tomorrow. Young Kenilworth's dismay exploded in a single exclamation. Well, you certainly are an extraordinary young person. Yes, I know, deprecated the May girl. It's because I'm so tall, I suppose. Before the unallayed breathlessness of my expression, she wilted like a worried flower. Yes, of course I know, Mrs. Delville, she acknowledged that mock marriages aren't considered very good taste. But a mock engagement, she wheedled, if it's conducted, oh, very, very, very properly. Her eyes were wide with pleading. Of course, I suggested, if it's conducted very, very, very properly. Across the May girl's lovely pink and white cheeks, the dark lashes fringed down. There will be no kissing affirmed the maid girl. Oh, shucks, protested young Kenilworth. Now you've spoiled everything. Out of the corner of one eye, I saw Rollins nudge Paul Brunswick. It was not a facetious nudge, but one quite markedly earnest. The whole expression, indeed, on Rollins's face was an expression of acute determination. With laughter and song and a flicker of candlelight, everybody filed upstairs to bed. Rollins carried his candle with the particularly unctuous pride of one who leads a torchlight procession, and as he turned on the upper landing and looked back, I noted that, 
behind the almost ribald excitement on his face there lurked a look of poignant wistfulness i've never been engaged before he confided grinningly to paul brunswick i'd like to make the most of it passing into my own room i flung back the casement windows for a revivifying slash of wind and rain before i should collapse utterly into the white scrumptiousness of my bed frankly i was very tired it must have been almost midnight when i woke to see my husband's dark figure silhouetted in the bright square of the door through the depths of my weariness a consuming curiosity struggled did ann walter come back i asked she did said my husband succinctly and how did you get on with alan john oh i'm crazy about alan john i yawned amiably and then with one of those perfectly inexplainable nerve explosions that astonishes no one as much as it astonishes oneself i struggled up on my elbow but he's still got my best silver salt shaker in his pocket i cried it was then that the scream of a siren whistle tore like some fear-maddened voice through the whole house shriller than knives it ripped and screeched into the senses doors banged feet thudded there's alan john now i gasped it's the whistle the may girl gave him End of chapter two